There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me in spirit today is Centauri Minor, and helping us move from awareness to action this week is Mr. Ken Clark, a House member at the Arizona State Legislature and a realtor. Welcome, Ken. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. I'm a former legislator, by the way. Former legislator. You are yeah. still mm-hmm. showing up on the website. So I, mm. I, I, I think you could probably get away with uh, whatever you want to get state, away with. Really? On the State House website? Yeah. I'm yes. going to have a look at that. Yeah. But either way, you are, you are a committed community member. You are, mm-hmm. You're currently very active in the, uh, in the democratic process. Uh, not only that, I just in a little bit of research I did for the call, you have a history of doing that all over the world. Yeah, yeah. I uh, did a little bit of work in the '90s in Bosnia. Um, I did. It was my, it was my idealistic period. Uh, I did a uh, what would you call it a, a conflict resolution based talk radio show, and we had it going on in seven cities. Sorry, seven shows going on in five cities for a couple of years there. Yeah, we came back here. Conflict based. I'm 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 sorry. Tell me what that is. Yeah, conflict resolution based talk radio. So, so yeah. Um, yeah, so basically what I did is I just took uh, what I had been learning in my master's degree around conflict resolution skills and I put it into a talk radio format. Got it. And the idea, yeah, the idea was to just kind of uh, create a space for people to talk about stuff that was going on. And we had about 300 hours of shows over the time I was there. And then we trained producers and uh hosts and all that so well that's probably a very cool experience what were some of the main issues that people were struggling with well a lot of returning refugees uh, a lot of people who you know maybe had a house then left someone else was told by the government oh this is your house now the first family comes back and there are questions about ownership Hmm. obviously trust around ethnic groups um questions about demining efforts because there were a huge number of mines in that country. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we had a ton of com- ton of different topics. What were some of the biggest learnings you took away? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it is easy to think you're going to go into a situation and that you have the knowledge, you know, uh, this kind of idea that I think Americans and Europeans had that Oh, you know, we, we know how to do things because we're not at war. And so we're going to come in and tell you how to, how to do it. And it's really never that simple. Uh, you have a lot of uh, issues that, that go beyond just, oh, you know, you, you need to organize yourself better, something like that. Uh, for me personally, uh, I think that I felt I went, I was going into that thinking that I was going to be able to make a significant impact on this country. Um, hoping that I would be able to through this kind of medium of radio. And I think we did all right. Uh, we got some attention for what we did. But I think when I look at it personally, the stuff that I'm the most proud of is uh, the, the change that I brought to people's individual lives, the people I worked with, um, and of course the things I learned from them. Got it. And the, this, this was roughly speaking how, how many years ago? 
Oh, I was there from basically late 1995 to the beginning, or early 2000. I'm sorry, 2000. Oh, let me get it right. Late 1995 to early 1998. I'm in the wrong decade. <laughs> so. Got it. And 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 you mentioned mm-hmm. that was during your your idealistic period. Yeah, I guess I've always been idealistic, but it, I was. Uh, yeah, that was maximum ideology, idealism. Uh, yeah, it was right out of grad school. Nice. Okay. Well, you know what? I, I can certainly put myself in 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 in, in, in your shoes and going in there. Hoping, thinking positively that you're going to have this massive impact, and I'm sure mm-hmm. that you did. Maybe just to, to to your point, not not perhaps to the scale. Um, if you were to go do that today, how yeah. how how do you think that your perspective on it would be? You know, I think I would have spent uh, a lot more time um, getting to know uh, the the organizations that were working there and in charge um, and spending time with individuals in those organizations. So for instance, you and hike commissioner for refugees, USAID was there, uh, care Canada, um, all these groups whose main purpose was just to make sure that food got in people's, you know, mouths uh, in this very unstable time. But I think spending more time with them, getting to know them uh, as individuals, you know, everything you do is about the relationships that you build, you know? Uh, and I think being able to work on those relationships and get to know those folks, I think would have probably helped us out a little bit more. Got it. Okay. Well, I, I feel like we started with one of those movies where we jumped, uh, to a, a point in the story and now we're going right. to, now, now we're going to work backwards and then mm-hmm. bring us to, to, to where we are today. So, so start from the beginning tell us where you grew up, mm-hmm. how you found yourself mm-hmm. in Bosnia and then how you find yourself where you are today. Sure. I, I was raised as a military dependent. My dad was in the air force, uh, moved around a lot. I started out very early in life in Germany. Um, came back to the United States, moved to Arizona in 82, mm-hmm. uh, went to uh, under, well, to left quite immediately, spent all of high school in uh, Germany and Holland. My uh, high school was in Holland, my, but we lived at a British base just on the other side of the border. So it was like a two and a half hour bus ride each day Oof. Um, because we picked up a lot of students on the way. It's kind of a feeder school for U.S., uh, American, Canadian, uh, German, Dutch students. Um, and then, so after that, came back here, went to NAU four years, uh, and then went to American University to get a, a, a degree in U.S. foreign policy, which I don't use at all, really, much anymore, because I'm a realtor now. But I got that degree. I decided in the process of that degree that I wanted to go someplace challenging and just kind of started volunteering with an organization that was going into, into Bosnia near the end of the war and then found myself continuing to work there for about two years. Um, and came back here in 98, found myself working in kind of nonprofit and then found myself into democratic politics, ran for office the first time in 2002 and won. I was quite surprised by that. I didn't quite expect it. And then was there just for one term. I decided not to run again in 2004. Uh, did some various other things. I ran the state energy office. I managed a campaign in 2008 that helped kick payday lenders out of Arizona, the predatory lending uh, companies, uh, and then found my way back into 
office in 2014, and I just stayed there for four more years. I lost my primary in 2018. Um, the other big thing that I worked on at that time was redistricting. So when we did the redistricting of our congressional and legislative districts in 2001, um, I was getting involved at the party level. And then in 2011, I created a bipartisan group, uh, the goal of which was to increase the number of competitive districts in uh, the legislature and Congress. Got it. So the goal was mm-hmm. to increase the number of competitive districts. So when right. you when you set set off on doing this, how many districts were there, and how many were there when you were done? Well, there are always thirty districts, legislative districts in Arizona, and that hasn't changed since the mid nineteen sixties. The U.S. congressional districts are determined by um, the census every. 10 years. So we have nine congressional districts now. It is expected that we're going to have a 10th. But if you look at the legislative district, um, at least at the time I was doing the the last redistricting, only three of those were considered competitive. That meaning either party could win. Um, The result of that is that about 50% of people in Arizona live in districts where their vote basically doesn't count in the general election, meaning that the district is so overwhelmingly controlled by the other party that that you really don't have a choice of who comes out of the primary. It's just going to go to whoever dominates that district. So I just felt, even though I'm a Democrat, I am a you know my country comes first, and I always felt that that was that was problematic, and it creates um, an environment in our country where you favor kind of um, extremes rather than people who are willing to work together. So, um, yeah, so at the congressional level, so I I just mentioned that we had about three, maybe four competitive districts at the state level, at the congressional level. Um, It was three. Now, uh, I think we can safely say we have four competitive districts um, in Arizona. So... But I think what you're going to find is that changes as soon as the redistricting is done. Whoever is more, whichever of the parties is more successful in the redistricting process, tends to be able to get what they want. So I think we're going to end up very possibly with fewer competitive districts in the next redistricting process. Isn't that bad? It is bad. I think it's <laughs> terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and here's the here's the problem in this whole conversation. If your listeners haven't fallen asleep yet, it's really just a matter of time. Because redistricting, A, is a complicated process, and it's very intimidating for people. I tell folks that if you can do fantasy football, you can follow redistricting. I am perplexed by fantasy football. I don't get it. But this is, you know, I can do this. And it's really a process of, just trying to make sure we advocate for um, an, a transparent redistricting process. Okay, so that being said, it's very hard for people to jump in and understand the process because there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, and, and, I, and I say this not because I want to discourage people, but because once you figure out the broad outlines of how it works, it's really not that hard to get involved. Um, and we've tried to, over the years, create more tools that people can use 
to get involved, uh, such as free online mapping tools where you can go on and you can make a suggestion to the commission, like where do you think the mapping like the boundary lines should go. So those kinds of things. Got it. So, all right. So you said every 10 years, uh, mm-hmm. the, the districts change when the census is updated. Yep. Yeah, sure. Let's okay. Yeah. Let's go through the basics, um, for, for your listeners. So you, every 10 years we do the census and that way since we became a country, and they take the census numbers, and the um, they are turned into what are called census tra- tracts, which are basically like geographic areas that each have about a few thousand people in them. And then the, that information is sent to each state, and each state has its own redistricting process. Some states, most states actually, the redistricting is done by the legislature or the assembly itself, which means the politicians are drawing their own lines. And you might obviously be able to see the conflict of interest there. Pretty clear. Yeah. So many states now, an increasing number of states, have um, independent redistricting commissions. We have one. We first used our independent redistricting commission in 2000, uh, the 2000 census, uh, and then we used it again in 2010, and we're about to get ready to start using it again. Um, That process uh, of Doing the lines just involves appointing the commissioners, and I can go into the details of that if you want. Uh, appointing the commissioners, the commissioners sit, they suggest maps, they hire map makers. Um, they are supposed to be somewhat independent from the political parties. And here's the core of all of this: you're never going to get out, to get the pursuit of power out of the process of drawing district lines, right? You're just not going to. The best you can hope for, and this is significant, is to create a great, a more transparent process, right? And that's what I want to see. I want to see more regular people have an opportunity to A, understand what's going on, and B, make their voices heard. Because I believe if that happens, I have faith in people that if that happens, um, we will have districts that are more responsive to regular voters in which you are more likely to be able to contact your your representative or uh, state senator and 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 tell them what you want and be heard when you have districts that are you know overwhelmingly drawn for one one party um then you're, they don't have as much incentive to listen to you. No doubt. All right. So on this commission, how many how many folks are appointed to it? Um, under current the current rules, there are five. This was put in place by a um, ballot measure uh, back in two thousand. I'm oh, sorry, nineteen ninety eight, which created the Independent Redistricting Commission. So, um, the it created a system where there are two Republicans and two Democrats and one independent who must be the chair of the commission. Uh, not to get too much into the weeds over the – since that was first created, I've advocated that it should have been and should be going forward uh, nine members, three Democrats, three Republicans, and three independents. Uh, the problem we have with it now is that because the two Democrats and two Republicans vote party line all the way through on the district maps, 
it creates an incredible amount of pressure on that one registered independent who is the chair, but it also creates um, a great deal of incentive for the parties to go out and find somebody to be the chair who is on paper independent, but who, um, who might be more sympathetic to their views. So in, there, in, in that way, it undermines um, trust in the process. Got it. Well, that certainly makes sense. Yeah. All right. So when when you advocate for a more transparent process, which makes mm-hmm. all the sense in the world to me, and I think the more transparency we can have in every aspect of life, the better, what right. what, what would that look like? Um, what it would look like in my mind, well, is, is first changing the number of commissioners, which, again, may not be possible between now and the next January when the commissioners are appointed, um, but that would be the first one. Increase the number of commissioners. Uh, that's going to make it harder for the parties to try to manipulate the process. More greater transparency. I think the the biggest thing is for the commission to adopt a, a mapping tool that is available to the public and that is. Um, relatively easy to use as in intuitive user-friendly where you can go on and see the various um, proposals for district lines that are in front of the commission and you have a chance to load them onto your own computer and add your own layers of information so as a case in point if a proposal is on the table for a set of districts and and you can download that and look at it yourself you can go and look and see hey nine-tenths of these districts seem to magically be drawn for people who are already in office <laughs> you know and that's that wasn't as bad here as it is in other states by the way we do a better job here than other states but but you do need to have that ability for the regular public to to do that in 2011, when I was the redistricting effort, we actually created a online mapping tool that had it made for us and contracted to have it make made. It, it, I expected you know maybe 50 people to get on there and use it. We had 300 accounts on there wow. within the first two weeks. Nice. I was shocked. Now you you hear that you go well. 50 people, 300 people out of the population of Arizona, 7 million people, like that's nothing. Well, no, it's really a lot. It, that's, those are big numbers of people who are paying attention to redistricting at that level. And, of course, I wish it were more, but that's pretty good. Now, we had so many people go download – or not download, but do sign on to that website and start downloading maps that we had to give it up at a certain point because – we couldn't raise the money to maintain the bandwidth that we had to use to push all that data out to the people who wanted to draw their own districts. So <laughs> lesson there was that people want to do this. If you give them a tool and it's understandable how to use it, uh, you're going to get people using it, and they're going to follow the routine. The, the public hearings, which are gonna, which are always um, uh, streamed on their on whatever websites, so 
what we're hoping will happen this year um, is that either we're going to take a stab at recreating that software again, or hopefully somebody else will who has deeper pockets and has the ability to uh, to create a, a the software that's more user friendly than what we were able to to create on our on our meager budget. Do I appreciate so. that very much? And you know, unfortunately, I'm all too aware of the low percentage or the low numbers of people that 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 turn out at state and local elections. So that you had such a great response mm-hmm. does demonstrate that people are engaged and 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 curious about this. So. It just strikes me that um, that you, there would almost be some kind of an algorithm that could just look at at an area and the number of people in it, and then just appropriately draw lines to divvy up those people equally. Does such a thing not exist? Um, not that anyone has been able to successfully produce. Now, there are some problems that you run into. Whenever I speak on this subject, I, I do hear what you're saying. I also hear people saying, why can't you just have square block districts? Sure. Just, yeah. you know. Now, there are several reasons. Uh, in the first instance, with algorithms, it is true that we are getting closer with more and more data to be able to, to do something like that. But um, Unless you have true transparency as to what's behind the algorithm, you could very easily manipulate that district so it may look like, um, you know, a competitive district, but it's really not. Right. Or it may look like a, a district that uh, uh, what's called a Voting Rights Act district, but it's really not. Um, so the that's the one point. Um, the the other one about square districts is you you literally cannot do that because uh, there are things like, you know, mountain ranges, you know, uh, that and the populations never really, they're not evenly distributed throughout the state. Mm-hmm. They tend to, to group up. So as soon as you run into that problem, your district lines start getting a little weird. People use the term gerrymandering um, as a, for a very good criticism, which is that the uh, districts are drawn to favor political parties. And uh, I think that the ten- what tends to go into that are things like what are known as cracking and packing. So cracking is where you take a different, a certain area, let's say downtown Phoenix, it's mostly liberal, right? But let's say if you wanted to make a bunch of a lot more conservative districts, you split up that area, that liberal area, and put those a few of those people in each of these surrounding districts. So you are cracking that area so that you're splitting up those people and they don't have a chance, right? Sure. Um, and then in packing is where you are kind of doing the opposite. You're packing a bunch of people into uh, districts where uh, there might be a lot of them, but they really don't have much chance to ever run anybody for office. Now, this is most commonly used to disenfranchise minority voting populations. So luckily, uh, we have a Voting Rights Act. And while uh, Congress in recent years has done its best to undermine the Voting Rights Act in several ways, it is still the case that uh, you have to create a certain number of districts 
in Arizona, at least, where um, underrepresented minority populations have a chance to elect people to represent their voices. Those are called Voting Rights Act districts. So that's another reason you can't just make, say, square districts, because now you're having to create districts around boundaries, say, like South Phoenix, to give people a chance there to send people to office who are going to represent their interests. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. So, so when is this commission going to be convened, appointed? Yeah. Yeah. This is very, this is really important for your for your listeners. If, if if they are interested to become a redistricting commissioner on the Independent Redistricting Commission, uh, they are going to see uh, uh, there an opportunity later this year to apply to that. So, what will happen is. I don't remember exactly when this year, uh, but the what's called – oh, man, this is going to get too confusing. <laughs> there is a commission that's a state that appoints other commissioners. I mean, it seems, seems crazy, but they also appoint judges, and that is called the Commission on Appellate Court Appointments. I don't, think, I don't think anybody's surprised that the government has commissions to appoint commissions. <laughs> yeah. And I know, and it's really easy to poke fun of them for it, but there's actually a really good reason to do it. I mean, you got to have somebody to start the ball rolling, sure. right? And you don't want a commission appointing people to itself because that's corrupt. That creates corruption. So mm-hmm. uh, the Commission on Appellate Court Appointments, uh, anybody who wants to be a commissioner of the Independent Redistricting Commission will send their application to that the Commission on Appellate Court Appointments, they will vet those people to make sure they meet the basic requirements of to be a commissioner, the, the independent redistricting commissioner. Those names are then forwarded to uh, the leaders, uh, the House and the Senate, uh, the Republicans and Democrats, who each pick their individual um uh, choices. So remember, the Republicans get two and the Democrats get two. Um, and then those four people get together, and their job is to choose a chair who must be a registered independent. And then there are certain rules around how long you have to have been um, in that same party. So let's say you're a registered Republican, you want to be one of the Republican commissioners on the Independent Redistricting Commission. You have to have been registered in the same party for at least, I want to say, the last seven years. You cannot have changed your party registration. Um, you, you cannot have been a candidate for office. Um, you cannot have been a lobbyist or staff or on, on a, somebody's campaign committee who's running for office. Um, and the same, a similar kind of thing holds true for the registered independent. Okay, so all those names are thrown together, and then in January, once the commission is finally established, all these people come together, the five commissioners, they're going to take that census data that I mentioned before that will be sent to them from the uh, U.S. Census Bureau, and then they're going to they're going to hire a map making company. Uh, mostly, you know, these data processing and mapping companies are out there. So they're going to hire one of those companies and they're going to start having uh, public hearings. At least in the previous 
decades, they had public hearings all of, all over the state for people to come and say what they think. You know, I think the line should go on this side of the mountain, not that side of the mountain, whatever. Um, and then that whole process should wrap up right around April uh, of 2021. Uh, so, and then what in, usually happens then is once the district lines are set by the commission, then various lawsuits come tumbling in from, you know, interested parties or the two political parties. It depends on, you know, who's most upset about it, I suppose. But we will have the new district lines ready for candidates to start collecting petition signatures in uh, late 2021 for the 2022 election. Got it. All right. So roughly speaking, January through April, that four-month period yep. is where they'll engage with the map-making firm, <clears throat> try to yep. hash that out. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of what the actual cost or budget for that part of the process is? And then I, I, I guess the next part of the question is what the cost of litigating all the rest of it is, mm-hmm. if you have a sense of that. That's a great question. I seem to recall that the whole thing – including the various lawsuits that the commission had to be available for and prepared uh, involved in. I want to say that that was about $10 million for the whole thing, which may seem like a lot of money, but it's really not because you're, that includes, you know, staffing, hiring, uh, mapping companies, hosting these open forums all around the, all around the state. And then, uh, having staff that's still working for a couple of years, even after the redistricting process has formally ended to deal with all the lawsuits. And they're also paying attorneys. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's not a surprising number at all. Got it. Mm-hmm. And what, what do you anticipate or what, what is your role in, uh, in, in the upcoming process? I don't know yet. Um, what I did in the past was really focused on uh, education and empowerment. Because for me, as a lawmaker and whatever else I've been doing, I really do have a lot of faith in people, once educated about the, the, how the system works, to do the right thing. So uh, my hope is to find a way to you know, have some programming or some, or maybe relaunch the um, the free mapping tool so that people can have more access to the, this, that they can feel empowered and educated about how the process works. Well, amen to that. Empowering yeah. people through education. And I, I too have faith in people that once they have the education and feel empowered, um, will hopefully get involved, uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and be more proactive. So I love it. Um, is there so so for people who are interested? Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you know if there's a website where 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 where, where people go? Yeah, I think I think you can go to azredistricting.gov. I think. Um, let's see if it's going to go there. No, I think azredistricting.org. We'll do a little research and just and just yeah, put it yeah. in the notes Sorry, of the yeah, show. Yeah, oh, it's okay. okay. Yeah, the now this is website is held over from last 
time. So they haven't really done anything since then. You can see the maps from last time. You can see some of the news. Um, I think the best thing to do if someone is a registered you know, Republican or Democrat and they want to be a commissioner, go to each of those parties and talk to them about it. Got it. Uh, they, those parties are out trying to find potential commissioners right now. As for the registered independents, um, you know, I think that they probably want to. They can always hit me up on LinkedIn under my name, Ben Clark, and I can try and direct them to the right place if, if they're really interested in that. I'm, I'm not too sure where the requirements are out there uh, for for being the uh, the, the chair of the commission, like, you know, what restrictions there are. Well, fair enough. Well, I am certainly a committed community member and I very much respect, respect and appreciate all the work that you're putting in. And you clearly are somebody who, who is also committed and is, as, as you said, you are country comes first kind of a guy versus a Republican or a Democrat. So thank you so much for, for your service. Well, thank you. And thanks for, you know, helping educate people out there about all these, all these very important issues. And professionally now you are, you are a, a realtor and I know that you've been doing that mm-hmm. for a long time for folks who want to learn more about um, you and your work there. Where can they go? Yeah, my website is getyourphx.com. It's actually a play on words. It's get your fix, getyourphx.com. And I've been a realtor since nineteen, or sorry, two thousand eight, because uh, I have a terrible sense of timing. <laughs> um, but I've been a realtor since then, and uh, we 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 were all over the valley, all over Maricopa County. We spent most of our time in Central Phoenix, uh, you know, historic neighborhoods, North Central, Arcadia, things like that. Um, I love doing it. I really enjoy helping people through the process and finding the right home. Um, it's a tough time right now because we have in Phoenix a 47 percent um, um, shortfall in the number of listings that, than we had last year. So it's it's hard to find anything right now, and prices are up. But uh, it's it's definitely an exciting time because we don't know what's coming next. Got it. Excellent. Well, Ken, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. I appreciate the time, George. And thanks, as always, for listening. I will uh, list in the notes of the show all the different places that, uh, that, that Ken mentioned for getting involved. And also go to getyourphx.com and get in touch with Ken and learn everything else that he is working on. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real. On behalf of Centauri and I, thanks as always for listening. Please subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and feel free to share the show on social media. Thanks a lot.